Tell me how you like this. How much? How much you like the chapter? I really like this chapter. Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I'm Matt Fox from Boston University, and I'm joined after what seems like a very long time by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto. Haley, how you doing? I am good. I'm so excited to be back here recording the third season of our podcast. I can't believe it's three seasons now. Where does the time go? Did you think we were going to get canceled after the first season due to low listenership? Well, yeah. I mean, I still am surprised when people say, oh, I heard you on your podcast. I'm like, you listen to to our podcast? People download our podcast? And yeah, I guess, you know, people do like to listen to it. So I'm glad we didn't get canceled. I'm glad we didn't either. I don't know what we would have done with our time if we didn't have this podcast. It's true. And I, I feel like I would never see you. So this to me is great. I know. It's like win-win. Win-win. And presumably this is now season three. So we, we can stop finally talking about the Olympics. <laughs> we can stop talking about the Olympics. I don't even know what day of the week it is right now. Never mind the year. I don't know when the next Olympics is happening. So I think we can move on from it. Okay, well, for our listeners, just to place this in time, because we know it takes a while for these episodes to come out. Haley, who have you been excited about in the World Cup? Well, I will say Canada made it to the World Cup, the men's, for the first time ever. And that was very exciting. And since then, I I think it's pretty cool that Morocco is the first African country to make it to the final. Make it to the semifinal. Like the round of four, right? I I only know it in terms of March Madness terms, so let's call it the final four. Yes, that's cool. What about you? Do you have a a favorite? No, all the teams that I was supporting have largely been eliminated, so I don't know what to do at this point. But I will say it has taken up a lot of my time over the past three weeks or so, and I don't regret any of it. It's good background filler. Like sometimes I listen to music when I'm I'm writing or doing actual work. I li- it's nice to have soccer on in the background because it's such a big field. They're always just running around, and it's not that often that exciting things happen. When something exciting happens, you can look up and take a, you know, take a bit of a break, but it's nice filler for me. Okay, I'm pretty sure if we haven't been canceled by now, we will be after what you just said, which sounded pretty down on soccer. Nothing, I think you said nothing exciting really happens most of the time, and it's good background filler, okay? <laughs> just want to make it clear, because, you know, sometimes people get us confused. That was you, Haley, that said that. I feel like I need to send a personal apology to Rob Platt and Enrique Schisterman, because they are huge soccer, football, whatever we call it, fans, and I support your fandom. It's just not my number one sport. Okay, and Argentina's still in it. So, Enrique, we'll record this now, but we don't know what's going to happen next, so we can't tell you. <laughs> okay, so I guess probably listeners technically don't know that season three, we're going to continue on where we left off the cliffhanger from season two, where it wasn't really clear whether confounding or other sources of bias were going to be the most dominant sources of bias on this show. We are back to tell you that we are picking up with modern epidemiology and we are picked a powerhouse first topic, didn't we? Selection bias and generalizability. Yeah, you know, we got a lot of feedback from the listeners that this idea of going through chapter by chapter was very well received. People liked it. Modern Epi is so dense and it's helpful to have people talk you through it. Also admitting that there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. And so we decided to continue on with that for for, for this season. 
Exactly. And we are starting with selection bias, which I have to say, and I've said this many times before, it is my least favorite of all the biases. I'm sure I've said it before in this podcast, but I don't remember anything I've said. But selection bias is the bane of my existence. And when we wrote our textbook on bias analysis, I said to co-authors, under no circumstances would I write the selection bias chapter. And to this day, I stand by that. It is the most challenging of all the biases. That's so interesting. So selection bias, as you know, is my favorite of the biases. And I would like to to know more about why why you think, why you hate it so much. Because there's nothing you can do about it. So you can prevent it. That's your option. As I always say, the advice I give about selection bias is the same advice that my uh, high school health teacher gave us when they gave the sex education lecture, which is just don't do it. (laughs) Just completely avoid it. Because once you have it, I, I think it's really hard to deal with. It's not like confounding where we have tons of analytic strategies to deal with confounding. We do have some. I mean, there are definitely some sensitivity analysis approaches, although I don't ever find them super convincing. You know, there's inverse probability weighting, which works really well if you have the ability to identify and predict the mechanisms of dropout from your study. But it only deals, first of all, it only really deals with those who are in your study and didn't make it to the end. And I I just struggle with it. I mean, fundamentally, selection bias is about people who were not in your study. So measurement error, I've got the people in my study, but I measured things about them wrong. Confounding, I got them into my study, but there are these other factors I have to deal with. So both of those sources of bias have to deal with people who are in the study. Selection bias largely deals with people who never made it into my study, and so I don't know that much about them. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> let's let's rewind a minute. Okay. Because I think... I agree with you. On some level, it's hardest to conceptualize selection bias, although I think that's because we overlook a lot of measurement related issues and we just kind of gloss over them and, and, you know, pretend like they're not that big a deal. I agree with that statement, but that doesn't mean we couldn't do a better job with measurement error is what I'm saying. Whereas selection bias, I'm, I'm not always convinced we can do a better job. Yeah. I mean, doing a better job in the selection sense means doing a better job of either recruiting people or keeping them in your study. Just like measurement, doing a better job would be getting a better measurement of whatever you're, you're looking for. So I agree, but those are both design approaches. Whereas I'm thinking more from the analytic standpoint, because you're right. I mean, from the design of the study, if we've failed to get people into our study or they've dropped out of our study, that's a design problem. And if we've measured things poorly, that's, you know, we've done that in the, the way we've designed or conducted the study. I'm thinking more, at least we have analytic approaches to deal with the measurement error that I think we don't quite have when it comes to the selection bias. Not that they don't exist, but I find them less convincing. Okay. I mean, I guess that depends on what specific data you're dealing with, what external sources of of data you have to help with your sensitivity analyses and and what assumptions and how much you you buy into that. But from a, a big picture perspective, I really like this chapter because I think it lays out the groundwork for understanding selection bias without getting too lost in the weeds. I think their definitions are very clear and easy to follow. And I like how it goes from initial selection bias at study recruitment It goes through the issue related to selection bias, keeping folks in your study, and then it talks about broader picture issues related to generalized
customizability, transportability, and representativeness. So I think, you know, this chapter does a really nice job laying out the sequence of things as you need to think through them. So I agree with a lot of what you just said there. I do have a question about definitions, but before we get into that, you have the book in front of you, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. So open up your table of contents. And I just want, so I, as I said, I've contended that selection bias is the bias that we spend the least amount of time on in our teaching, in our, like, if you read the discussion sections of papers, people, you know, they're much more likely to talk about measurement error issues or confounding. Haley disagrees with me on this, but okay, fine. But I contend that it also is the shortest biased chapter in this book. Am I correct about that? Oh, I need to check my table. Okay, well, confounding is 24 pages. Measurement error, 25-ish pages. Okay, and selection bias is just over 18. But remember, remember, this is selection bias and generalizability. But what I really like about this chapter is I find that when you're teaching about selection bias, there's so many specific examples that you get into. They could have expanded this chapter dramatically by going into, here's a DAG for this situation, here's a DAG for this situation, basically replicating what's in my favorite manuscript, A Structural Approach to Selection Bias, 2004, Hernan and colleagues, right? But that paper is long because it goes through each of the various scenarios and describes a DAG and a real life example for each of those. Mm -hmm. I like this chapter because it doesn't do that. It gives you big picture ideas without going too much into the weeds that I find people get lost in. So, so I actually like this chapter, even though it is shorter. Okay, I definitely want the weeds, but that's just a difference of opinion. But I guess my request is for Modern Epidemiology 5th Edition for selection bias and generalizability to be their own chapters. Because I think those two sources of, well, one's a source of bias, one's more about interpretation, but I think they both could conceivably be their own chapters and we could go more into depth. I think part of the reason we don't is because I think with selection bias, again, we don't always know what to do about it. And with generalizability, I feel like there really hasn't been enough work on this. I mean, there's some fantastic work that's being done now, and it's talked about here in this book as well. So I'm not saying that it's ignored. I'd just like to see more of it. I'd, I'd like, you know, a lot of deep thinking on generalizability, transportability, and all those things. I just can't see how that topic would make it to its own 25-page chapter at this point. I don't think it has its own standalone chapter yet. Don't you think that's that says something about us as a field, though, that we haven't spent the time to really delve into you know, issues of generalizability the way that we have with confounding and selection bias and measurement error? I mean, generalizability in and of itself, I don't think, is a threat to internal validity of the, the study that you're doing in the same way that those other three types of bias are that, that we just mentioned. So it's a, a question about how are you going to apply your study results to the broader world, not a question about how are you going to do the best possible study to get the most accurate result you can. So, yeah, and there is, you know, colleagues of ours who have been working on this concept of, I think they call it target validity. Validity, mm -hmm. which, you know, essentially says we have historically thought of, you know, you have to have internal validity first, and then you can think about external validity or generalizability or transportability, depending on what your, your question is. And, you know, the way they're looking at it is saying there is some population to which we want to make inferences. And ultimately, whether we get it wrong because of internal validity or we get it wrong because of issues of external validity kind of doesn't matter. I mean, they're both sources of error. 
I don't know whether you call it bias or not. I'd have to think about that. But they're both sources of error in how we draw inferences about the specific target population that we're interested in. And I find that very different from the way that I was taught these things, but I find it kind of compelling. Yeah, I guess they are sources of error. But if you have a study result that is internally valid, it's valid for the population in which you did your study. And it's a a self-inflicted error if you are improperly generalizing that to a different study population. Like those are two separate sources of error in my mind. You need to have one in order to have the other. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I don't want to speak for them, and it's possible I would be misinterpreting what they're saying, but I think they would say, you know, the ultimate goal is not to generate information that is internally valid, but doesn't doesn't really apply to the world in which we live, then if the ultimate goal is to generalize to some target population, it sort of doesn't matter why we get it wrong, whether it's internal validity problems or external validity problems. And by the way, I guess the fact that we're calling it external validity does hint that we are talking about bias. It's a a different kind of bias, but it's bias. I think I would call it... I actually don't know. I need to think about that a little bit more also. I don't know if I would call it a type of bias. The, the other types of bias are a threat to internal validity of your study. Yep. Getting the wrong answer compared to the truth. Compared to the truth for the people in your study, but not necessarily the, the source population or the target population. Right. So you are at, you're saying that if we consider generalizability under the category of bias... Yeah, I'm saying that if we thought more broadly about what our objective is and thought of it as ultimately not just generating internally valid information that may or may not relate to any larger population that we want to generalize to, then the overall goal should be getting as close to that target validity as we can. And sometimes there are cases where we might want to prioritize you know, the external validity over the internal validity because we feel like we can get closer to the right answer. I'm not saying that's probably a likely scenario. I'm just saying it, it strikes me as theoretically possible. So if you were doing a, a large survey of a million people, you might not choose the gold standard measurement of something so you could have a measurement on those million people. You're prioritizing generalizability. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. I mean, another way would be to just think about if we're thinking about transporting the results of one study to another population, then we need to be able to collect good information on the modifiers that potentially change the effects so that we can reweight our sample to look like the larger target population. So I, I, I just think there are ways in which we could broaden our thinking about what the goal is. And then we would have to think about both internal and external validity as both being critically important and not think internal validity first, then external validity only if we get internal validity. Yeah, I, I agree with the first part of what you said that I think we should definitely broaden our thinking to consider issues related to external validity, generalizability, transportability in a more thoughtful way than just a study was only done in women and therefore it doesn't necessarily apply to men. I find that those qualitative statements that are often included in the discussion are are really not very helpful. But I disagree with the second part of what you said, which is that there could be a situation in which we wouldn't be as worried about internal validity at the expense of external validity. We'd still be worried about it. I'm just saying if we think of all studies as an exercise in rational use of resources that we might target 
get resources away from a measure that could get us better internal validity if we're really concerned about external validity and know we have to target some of those resources to being able to transport our results to a different population. But okay, so clearly we disagree a bit on that one. Let's go back to selection bias because that's where we where we sort of said we'd start. Uh, so, so the chapter says selection bias arises when the estimate of occurrence or of etiologic effect obtained from a study population differs systematically from the estimate that would have been obtained had information from the source population been available. So in other words, it seems to me we're saying that the estimate of effect that we get from the people who are in our study is different from what we would have gotten had we included the entire source population. Yeah. I think in some ways I, I would quibble mildly with this definition that it seems like it sort of assumes but doesn't actually say that we have gotten rid of all other sources of bias, right? Uh, because, I mean, the estimate in the study population could differ from the estimate in the source population unrelated to selection. It could be because of, of measurement or confounding. But I guess we're sort of saying the assumption is we've we've taken care of those. Yeah, but the subject of the sentence is selection bias arises. So yes, I agree with you that there could be other reasons why, but I do think that this sentence in particular is trying to explain to us why selection bias causes this problem. So I, I like that first sentence as a really broad umbrella definition, just to introduce this concept where you may get an estimate that's different in your study population than you would have gotten in the source population, just as a sort of, let's set the foundation, set the state for how selection bias occurs. And then it goes on to explain it further in the next sentence, which is differences that arise because of who gets enrolled in your study, and also differences that may occur based on who continues to participate in your study study over time. You know, so I, I like that, you know, initial sentence. It's not saying this is the only reason why you might have differences, but it, it's a primer kind of thing. Oh, okay. So you're, you're saying the definition is actually those two sentences together. Yeah. And I'm reading too much into it in looking only at the first sentence. I, I buy that. That's fair. I have a comment about those first two sentences also, actually. It, Please. Which is that I find many people in their current work do secondary data analyses. And the broader concept of selection bias which is who gets enrolled into your study and who stays in it over time. I don't really find that it adequately considers issues of secondary data collection where most people are not enrolling people into their studies. They're selecting individuals, they're conditioning you know, or restricting a study population that already exists. But I wish there were more, maybe a third, the next sentence, which I don't think it actually says this, but if the next sentence talked about the ways in which you can introduce selection bias, not through primary data collection. Does that make sense? Yeah, although I don't think these sentences are limited to primary or secondary data collection. I mean, you could just think of your secondary analysis as being a, a subset of, of a subset. And there is that original population that is your source population. And you've just sort of further conditioned. If you had been doing the prospective version of that study, you could have added those further inclusion criteria at that time of data collection and only collected it on people who would have been eligible for your secondary data analysis. So I do agree that it has the potential to introduce more selection bias, but I don't know that it's fundamentally a different concept. I don't think it's fundamentally different. 
I just think it needs more awareness that even though you're not enrolling participants into your study, you're not collecting individuals from the community, even if you have a population representative sample, if you are stratifying or conditioning in some way, you can introduce selection bias into your study analytic cohort, regardless of how that initial cohort was collected through primary data collection. Okay, so that gets at what, what I was going to say about this definition, which again, I think, you know, it's a, it's a good definition. It's a great place to start. But where I get confused, and I, and I want to be clear, I mean, they talk about this issue throughout. I'm just really getting at this first definition is how do we factor in, and it gets to what you're saying here, you're talking about it more from a, a design standpoint. I'm talking about it more from an analysis standpoint of the issue of conditioning on a collider. We've sort of reached the point at which we think of selection bias as while there are clear cases is where so you can have selection bias without conditioning on a collider, but much of selection bias can be depicted in DAGs as conditioning on a collider, which can be done analytically. So can, do we still consider that selection bias? And if so, how does that fit into this definition where it says the differences arrive from differences between the participants at initial study enrollment or from differences between those who continue to participate? So I could have everybody included from the source population and all of them complete follow-up, but I condition on a variable that creates bias that I think we might call selection bias, at least if we generalize conditioning on a collider to be selection bias, that doesn't seem like it would fit here. Yeah, so that's exactly the point that I I was trying to make. I think that modern context, there are broader ways of thinking about selection bias. And what you described, I would absolutely consider selection bias, even though you claim it's analytic, I claim it's at the design stage, you are in some way conditioning on this collider and introducing bias. Yeah, and just to be clear, I, I, I was sort of saying it could be both. It could be conditioning, which you could think of as a design feature. You know, essentially, we're just going to define the population this way. Or it could be analytic. I'm going to you know, adjust for a variable in my analytic model. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree completely. And, and I think that that, you know, when you really drill into that definition, my concern with those who get enrolled, actual physical people who get enrolled at the start of follow-up or those who continue to be in the study, it seems as though those who show up to their clinic visits over time, which is not the only way that selection bias gets introduced in a, you know, a longitudinal format. Yep. I do, I do want to, though, clarify. I mean, I'm not suggesting that they don't discuss this. In fact, they do. Yeah. They go on to say, in studies of etiologic effects, this selection bias can arise from collider bias, which is a biasing path in a causal graph wherein both the etiologic agent of interest and the outcome of interest are ancestors of initial or continued participation. In studies of etiologic effects, selection bias can arise if the outcome is associated with the selection and the strength of selection varies in different levels of exposure. So in other words, they very much get into that. Yeah. It just sort of wasn't there in the beginning. And maybe maybe that's it. Maybe it's just they're defining it over a series of steps and, and I'm just being impatient or looking for a one sentence definition of selection bias. But that's what I love so much about this chapter, right? Is that there's a lot of nuance in discussing selection bias and you really have to go through it level by level. You know, they can't jump into that sentence about collider bias or the strength of of selection in exposure groups without first defining this this umbrella term. So I think they do a really nice job in this intro paragraph setting the stage for the nuanced discussion that is to come. I agree. One thing I do like, I believe they comment on this in the chapter, and I've certainly had conversations like this in, in my life with my economist friends. Yes, I have economist friends. Hmm. Is that the economists often, or at least the ones that I have been in contact with, don't 
really distinguish much between confounding and selection bias. You know, essentially, it's all either you're being selected into the study or you're self-selecting into an exposure group or somebody is selecting you into that exposure. It's all about selection in their view. But to me, I actually find it really useful to think of the different mechanisms by which you get to those bias. So to me, selection bias is always going to be about the way that people are selected into or out of your study. But that doesn't really comport with the analytic collider bias definition. It does if you think about that second part, which you said selection out of, right? So when you think about conditioning as basically either looking only at one group, if you're stratifying or restricting, examining a specific section of your population, you're selecting out those individuals. So I still can see it as framed within that broader definition of selection bias. I buy that. Okay, so what I like about how they build on this idea of selection bias, they start to go into these big categories of how selection bias might be introduced, which is about baseline participation, loss to follow-up, self-selection bias, which is, you know, volunteer bias or healthy worker effect type biases, and then Berksonian bias as well. So I don't like that Berksonian bias has its own name. Okay. I find every time I think about Berkson's bias, I have to think, why can't we call that selection bias? Can you explain to the listeners what Berkson's bias is? I'm going to read the definition so I don't mess it up, but Berkson's bias a arises in studies of the association between two diseases when the population is limited to a convenient sample such as hospitalized patients. We get a bias when the exposure is a predecessor disease and the outcome D is a hypothesized outcome like dementia. So if both of those are leading to hospitalization, by taking a convenient sample of those who are hospitalized, you are inducing collider bias related to being in the hospital. And you don't like that it gets its own name because it's just collider bias to you. Right. And every time I hear Bergsonian bias, I have to think, what's the structure? Why can't we just call it collider bias? Because it's the same as all the other types of collider bias. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, sometimes you gotta, it's all about branding and marketing. Yeah, Bergson did a an A-plus job on the branding. Well, so I, I suppose the question, and actually this is this is a question that I wrote down, how much do you think that is because at the time that that was being identified, we weren't using DAGs. And so the, the structure probably wasn't as elucidated and therefore its similarities to other sources of selection bias just weren't as clear. And so it got its own name. That's interesting. I didn't really think about that. I mean, the question that I wrote down was how many of the early controversies that erupted in epidemiology do you think would have been solved much faster had DAGs been around? Many. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to me that DAGs have clarified so many things for us that, you know, we spent a lot of time fighting about that they wouldn't have been resolved immediately, but could have resolved faster. Yeah, I mean, that's the brilliance of DAGs, right? Like, that's the brilliance of why students and anyone starting a research project used to sit and think about their DAG and draw it out and and figure out, am I introducing a crazy source of bias um, that's going to invalidate my results? Yep. I had a question. I would like to ask your thoughts on quantitative bias analysis for selection bias. You're shaking your head. <laughs> That's why I didn't write the chapter. Go ahead. Go ahead. The mathematical algebraic formula yep. for quantitative bias analysis for selection bias is simple. It's, you know, multiplying and dividing. Why don't more people use this approach? Okay. Let's, for the listener, try to make it as clear as possible. So if I have selection bias, I can analytically adjust my estimate for that selection bias. All I need to know is four proportions. I need to know the proportion of people who were included in my study out of all the people who could have been included 
included in my study broken down by the exposure and the disease. So if I have a dichotomous exposure and a dichotomous outcome, then I just need four numbers. The probability of being included if I'm an exposed case, an exposed non-case, etc., etc. So and then and then the formula is really very simple. It's really just taking the selection odds ratio and combining it with the observed odds ratio. It's it could not be easier. The reason why I think most people don't use it is because nobody knows what those proportions are to be able to inform them. It's rare that you would be in a situation, and this gets back to what I was trying to say in the beginning, when it comes to misclassification, I know who I have the non-gold standard measurement on, and I can go to the literature or I could do an internal validation study to figure out what the sensitivity and specificity is of the misclassification. With selection bias, I'm dealing with people who were never in my study, or potentially people who were in my study were lost to follow-up, but I think that's a, a probably a simpler problem to deal with, but I think it's more the people who never got into my study. How do I know what proportion of the exposed cases that could have been in my study made it into my study when they never made it into my study? Right. So I guess it depends on, again, we're talking about make it into my study. I used this approach once when it was looking at a study population that I thought was biased and they only included those uh, individuals who had diabetes. Individuals who didn't have diabetes were not included, so they conditioned on diabetes status. So we took estimate uh, sampling fractions for those four probabilities that you mentioned from NHANES. So we we looked at how many people are in the total NHANES population, which is representative of the broader U.S. population, as our denominator, and the number of individuals with diabetes among individuals with diabetes who was exposed and who was unexposed. We are looking at obesity in, in our example. So there are ways of using external data sources to come up with these sampling fractions. You just kind of have to think creatively about how you're getting them. I think that's a, a very particular context where you're conditioning on disease status. But I think there are ways or at least do some kind of, you know, multidimensional or sensitivity analysis where you can kind of just get a sense of whether there could be bias introduced. So can I just try to understand this better? So what was the exposure outcome contrast that you were studying limited to only those without diabetes? It, the study that had been published was looking at obesity and mortality among individuals with diabetes. They found that obesity was protective among individuals with diabetes. And we were trying to show that this was just collider bias, or at least in part could be explained by collider bias. And you had obesity and mortality data in NHANES stratified by diabetes? status? Yeah, correct. I suppose then the question would be then why not do this study in NHANES? Well, it was a published, it was a previously published article. You know, it came out and the headlines were all sensational. Obesity is protective for mortality if you already have diabetes, etc. And we wanted to show if you had included both strata, which is individuals with and without diabetes, you could have gotten a different answer conditioning on diabetes status, which is a child caused by obesity. Yep. You know, you've introduced this type of collider bias. So that's that was, you know, where we were coming at it from. But I think that that could be expanded to any other situation where you can find external data for your bias analysis. Oh, is what you're saying is the result that you got in your it, or in the study that you were looking at would have been the same if the uh, selection proportions had been the same as what they were in NHANES? Correct. But isn't, wouldn't it also be reasonable to say that NHANES is selected? In what way? Well, you, I mean, to be in NHANES, you have to recruit it into it, right? It's a representative sample. Of non-institutionalized U.S. citizens yep. is, I think, what they what they say. Oh, obviously, you have to consent to participate. But you 
have to consent to be in it. So there's there's some selection. There's that happens some level there. of selection. Yeah. And do we know is it is it very low? I think it's pretty low. I don't. I actually don't know the answer to that. But I, you know, it's it's certainly it's sold as a representative sample of the U.S. population. You know, I actually don't. I'm sure they publish what the estimates are, but I don't actually know the answer to that. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. I I would believe that. And as long as the proportion of people who get in, invited to participate is very close to the proportion that it actually participate, I would I would buy that. So yeah. So I think in that case, that's a great example. I just I think that oftentimes people kind of throw up their hands and say, we don't know who didn't participate, where you can use reasonable estimates or external validation sources or previously published work where other individuals have actually published. We approached 3000 people and 2500 agreed to participate. You know, those kind of estimates could inform some type of analysis, some type of selection bias analysis, rather than just saying, this may or may not be a concern. We don't really have quantitative estimates for it. So we're just going to put it in the discussion section and not worry about it. Okay. So wouldn't though, like, so the example you just gave there, like we approached 2000 and only 1500 agreed to be in the study. Isn't the 2000 though already selected? You know, I mean, unless, unless part of the reason why I think the NHANES example that you gave makes sense is because NHANES is a representative sample. Now I'm not saying that you have to have a representative sample, but your sample has to be representative of some population for it to not suffer from selection bias. Or it could be a, it could be a very well-defined, you know, we're just going to look at men between the ages of X, Y, and Z with condition, whatever but we still need a representative sample of those people to have no selection. Whereas, so if you just go out and recruit people, you go out and recruit people and then a percentage of them say no, I don't think the population, the source population are just the 2,000 you approach. It's whoever the 2,000 you approached who could have been eligible to be approached. Yeah, no, I, I think that that was a, a poor example to give in the abstract because I agree with you completely that it, you know those are really important caveats to attach to any example. You could construct something like, I wanted to study cannabis use in high schoolers and the high school had 2,000 individuals and I took a representative sample or I guess they had 5,000 individuals and took a representative sample, you know, so something like that. You can construct examples with those numbers, but I agree without any other details, it's, it's not particularly helpful just to know the proportion that accepted out of those who were invited. Yep. So I think you're right. And I think the example you gave was a great one. And I would encourage people to do more of that. And maybe I will use that example in the future when I say, I don't know, you know, selection bias is really hard to deal with and say that I'm wrong. And Kaylee's got a really good example of how you can do it. But I, you know, I would, I would just caution that that example is a case where you had data from a really good representative source. Yeah. All right. So can I ask the last then topic that I think we should cover? Yes, yeah, sure. Do we spend too much time making a distinction between selection bias and confounding? One of the things I liked about this chapter was I've long heard people say that there's selection bias that you can basically just treat like confounding and then there's selection bias that you can't. In other words, there's selection bias that you could just adjust away and there's selection bias that you can't. And that never really made a lot of sense to me. Sort of like if this is all at the end of the day about conditioning on a collider, even if we just say that definition is because of participation, then at some point, if I just adjust for the variables that create this new pathway, then I can remove the bias. And why does it matter? or whether we call it selection bias or confounding, except that it matters in the sense of try to understand where it com- came from. So one is comes from recruiting people into or out of my study, and one comes from associations that exist in the population regardless of whether or not I ever do my study. So from that standpoint, it makes sense. But what this chapter made clear for me is actually, you know, there would be times when you can't adjust away the collider stratification bias because it's the exposure and the outcome affecting the participation, in which case the biasing pathway is directly 
between the exposure and the outcome, there's no ancestors available to you to remove the bias. Okay, so that was a helpful aha moment for me. But, you know, at the end of the day, if what happens is we end up with non-comparable populations, whether it's due to conditioning on a collider or due to factors that exist in the population, at the end of the day, we end up with non-exchangeable populations, right? Yeah, so I think we've talked about this before in that exchangeability can refer to a lack of exchangeability due to confounding or a lack of exchangeability due to selection. And I appreciate the distinction between selection bias and confounding because I think they're referring to distinct concepts. Perhaps the analytic strategy that you have, if you have a great measure that you know you can adjust for, for why people chose to participate versus not, you can adjust for it in your, your analytic strategy and, and you're in good shape. The more complicated scenario is that we often don't have that and it's a much more complicated analytic process, you know, sometimes using inverse probability weights, etc. than we have for confounding. So I think that theoretically, conceptually, it is really important to distinguish those. And I appreciated that also in the chapter that I felt like they did a nice job describing why those are different. I do too. And I, I'm being provocative. I actually do think we want to make that distinction. I am always struck by when I teach the counterfactual approach to confounding, at the end of the day, we could have lack of exchangeability here that is not caused by confounding, but is instead created by selection bias. And the model seems to be fine with that difference in reason. At the end of the day, we just end up with a a bias that my populations are not exchangeable. And whether it's caused by confounding or selection bias seems irrelevant to the model. I mean, this is why you need to have training in epidemiology beyond just being able to run a statistical model, right? You have to make inferences, you have to interpret the results. I I had a supervisor, I think I've said this once, that he said that a little bit of knowledge with a statistical software is a very dangerous thing Mm -hmm. because you think you're doing something, you think your results are telling you something and they're not, or you're interpreting it incorrectly. And I think what you're describing is a a slippery slope related to that, where you can adjust for something, whether it's making your populations exchangeable or not. Is it related to confounding or selection? These are concepts that you need to understand in order to be able to interpret your study findings. So you need to understand the distinction between those two. I would agree. I think we gotta we gotta leave it there. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June here in Portland. And it also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at eperesearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one. And as a reminder, any views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We appreciate you listening and we hope you will look out for our next episode. Bye, Haley. Bye.